Hello, everybody. Welcome once again to another fantastic episode of the Business Creators Radio Show, where we help you win at the game of business and marketing so you thrive from your intersection of your brilliance and your passion and make a difference for your community, market, and audience. My name is Adam Homie. I'm your host, and I am honored by your wise decision to tune in and invest in yourself today. Please be sure to visit our website at www.businesscreatorsradioshow.com and subscribe to your favorite network so you get fresh episodes delivered straight to your door. Today, we're going to cover a topic that I think is very important when it comes to being a business creator and having what in the change management field they call a lean and agile organization. I think it's also very important when you're looking at your human resources and how you leverage those most effectively by supporting them with software. Today's topic is custom software development for innovative businesses. We have somebody here that I've been very excited to share with you for a while now, and I'm so happy that we were able to get him to find time in his schedule to come hang out with us here at the Business Creators Radio Show. His name is Ian Reynolds. He is the partner and Chief Solutions Architect at ZipTech, which is a software development firm focused on helping businesses of all sizes in the U.S. to solve their core problems with their software. Ian has spent his career consulting and helping different industries to empower greater profitability and efficiency. He loves to share his experiences and ideas on building the right tools through custom software. You may be listening to that right now thinking, wow, that sounds kind of global and vague, but the fact is, as you listen to what Ian has to share with you, you're going to discover a number of precious insights that are going to assist you in leveraging the power of custom software development to increase your innovation, no matter what size business you have. So Ian Reynolds, come on in. The weather's fine. Hey, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Awesome, awesome. The pleasure's all ours. Before we dive in, I know that some of our listeners are sort of opening separate browser tabs, they're leaning in, they're binging the Yahoo out of the Googles looking to discover who this Ian Reynolds is and what ZibTech.com is. There's a plug, ZibTech.com. Check out the website. If you could do us a favor, tell us a little bit, let's take a quick step back before we get into this. Tell us a little bit about your personal journey and your business journey and what's brought you to where you are today, serving business creators from your intersection of your brilliance and your passion and making a difference for your community market and audience. Sure. Yeah. I'll walk you through my background. So really, I guess kind of starting my career, I was in and around startups for a number of years, helped, helped launch about eight different products on market. Got really kind of tired of living under my desk. So <laughs> and, um, Decided, okay, I'm going to go get the, do the traditional MBA route, go get the MBA, and then go into sort of a traditional uh, MBA role. And so completed the MBA in record time, uh, under two years, and then went into traditional consulting uh, in, in Houston and had the opportunity to serve Fortune 500s, did that for four or five years uh, thereafter, and did all sort of elements of the consulting realm from, you know, enterprise software deployment, custom software to, uh, you know, sort of advisory consulting. Uh, and then on the finance side, I've done about uh, you know, several billion dollars in uh, M&A uh, advisory restructuring, uh, you sort of name it, right? So I've seen, I've seen sort of all elements of a business environment, both, you know, growing and healthy to, 
uh, large IT deployments to strategy to uh, finance and even restructuring. And so really ultimately decided, well, you know, that's, this has been fun. You're kind of jumping in and playing this advisory role, but I want to kind of get my hands dirty and help people solve problems and looked around for a while and, you know, was thinking about acquiring a business, wasn't really particularly interested in one given field, uh, but bumped into Cash Merrill, my business partner, and he said, hey, you know, why don't you buy half of this business and uh, let's jump in and run it. And so I acquired half of ZipTech about two and a half years ago. And ever since we've been solving problems for folks. And ZipTech has been an established company. We've been established for 10 years, uh, solving, solving software solutions or building software solutions for, for firms. Uh, but uh, so I've been, I've been a partner for the last uh, uh, two and a half. Great. That's fantastic. And you know, you and I have something in common. When I finished my undergraduate studies at Penn State University, I have a degree in political science. I was certain I was going to go to law school and become an attorney. Right before I graduated, I attended a seminar that was hosted by a high-powered, high-octane corporate lawyer. This guy was charismatic. He was provocative. He was controversial. He was mesmerizing. I leaned in. I absorbed every word. I felt the power of what he was sharing go right through me. And after listening to him for three hours, I knew there was no way in hell I was going to be a lawyer. So I basically came out of college not knowing what the hell I was going to do. So I took a couple of jobs in succession, one of which was so awful. And I celebrate the day that I left it is my second birthday and actually write about that in my chapter in the International Bestseller Journeys to Success of Millennial Edition, which came out in 2018. So I did what you did. I finally got a decent job. I was working uh, in this hybrid position that straddled between community relations and training. And by training, we mean employee training and network provider training. This was a managed care organization. And went to Duquesne University, got my MBA in human resource management. My goal, Fortune 500 training and development director by age 35. Right. Didn't work out that way. Didn't work out that way. (laughs) So I... um, By that time, after I graduated with the MBA, I did the usual network, job search, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I got my portfolio together. I approached a number of smaller companies because that's the environment I've always liked to work with. I like innovative, revolutionary companies where your voice matters and small changes make a big difference because I like to see my results in real time. And there were two companies that actually weren't quote unquote hiring that liked what I had to offer and were willing to bring me onto their team. They were great offers. They were great companies. I turned them down. By this time, I had circled back around and one of my previous mentors himself had started a training and development consulting company. So I came on doing some freelance work with him, helping him develop his presentations, his intellectual material, uh, working with him to get his book published. It was a lot of fun, and I caught the entrepreneurial bug. I formed an LLC around it, and for two years, because I didn't understand how online marketing worked and how things and innovation actually happen, I kind of juggled between my day job and the side gig until I finally became an entrepreneur. 
I think that's a story that a lot of people have. And that's why I appreciate you sharing that with us, Ian, is they go into something because they believe it is, in fact, the the ticket to where they need to go and they try it and then they discover that they find themselves living under their desk and they had visions of maybe living somewhere else. So, <laughs> so I think there's a lot of our listeners that can relate at least some level with your story. And that's why I love to have our guests just take a quick moment, go down that journey and we get different answers every time, different focuses every time. And it really enriches the experience. So enough about me. Let's talk about me. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Let's get into you. Uh, you have your experience working with ZibTech and the use of custom software for innovation. Let's start very broad and we'll work our way in depending on how you guide us because you're kind of the sensei here. Sure what, sure. what do you see are as being one of the most common software problems in business? I think, I think the biggest problem that we see in terms of, in terms of businesses is that they're trying to put round pegs in square holes. Uh-huh. They're trying to use a tool that doesn't solve the problem for their business. And they're using it in a way that probably the tool was never designed to do. And they're not recognizing that. And by doing that, right, they're not recognizing that they can solve that problem by probably building, not even necessarily a large application, not, not going out and building a SaaS product, but by using some engineering time to automate a business process that is otherwise done manually, right? There yeah. are lots and lots and lots of little things that occur within large organizations and small that really should be automated to, to free up people to solve much bigger problems. I'll give you an example. Yeah. We have a client that is a retail power client, very large, thousands of employees, they have four or five employees working out of spreadsheets right now yeah. to do some, some manual work, manual reporting. And these employees are close to retiring and someone has been charged with figuring out what it is these guys do. And Uh-oh, I see in, where this is going. Right. And in discovering what it is these folks do, this person says, well, there's no way I can manually take over that process. It needs to be automated and it should be automated and it's not gonna be that hard to automate, right? This is going to be one engineering resource for um, you know, probably four or five weeks and then we're out of there and the problem is solved. And th- these, you know, these people's jobs are not gonna suffer uh, because they already, have already stated, hey, I'm gonna retire. Uh, but the company gains the efficiency. And so take that one example and then apply that to just about anything else that you're doing within your business. Is there a way to automate that. Is there a way that I can build a process around this where I need as little input as possible to solve this problem? Yeah, that is a fairly common thing that we see. And I think this is where we may end up bifurcating this issue or potentially looking at a couple different avenues. You bring up what, when I heard you say it, I viewed as siloing. You have four or five people who've been with the company for a long time. They understand the process because they literally have it mapped in their head. They can do it extemporaneously. They can, they can figure out the scheme of it while they're taking their morning walk before they come to work. And they're tracking it on a simple spreadsheet. That's all on well for them, but let's say they retire. Let's say they die. Let's say they have an abrupt life change. Let's say that any number of things could happen. 
the process needs to live on beyond those people. Now we need to look at a software implementation. So this leads to another question I have, especially with small and medium-sized businesses, the, the, the budget for software can sometimes be very limited. So what we see folks do is they get caught in another form of ox and horse cart situation where they want a software to do a certain thing and they can't find an off-the-shelf software that does exactly what they're looking for. Maybe it does 80%, but they get stuck on this one small thing that the software doesn't do, and they wanna have the whole thing custom-built, uh, whether they have the budget or not, or they try and go to that off-the-shelf company and say, hey, can you make this huge change in what you're doing just for me because this little 10% thing, because I don't wanna change my dream vision of what I'm doing at all. So there's a balance, I think, out there. This is just my perspective. That's why I'm asking you. Between wanting to have a software that does exactly what you want it to do to a T versus the issues of there's really nothing off the shelf that does it exactly that way. Having something custom built could be cost prohibitive and come with its own expenses besides and then there's the, well, what happens if a year from now we need to do things a little bit differently? I know I'm throwing a few different issues at you, uh, mm -hmm. and I'm wondering if that's something you've heard before in your conversations about how to go about all this. Yeah, it's, it's a very common problem. And, and I would say, generally speaking, the way you solve that is with software selection. And you know, having basically, we're going to do, typically our, our firm, we're going to do a diligence up front. You know, we're going to ask for a little bit of time to do some research on your behalf see if a solution is technically feasible, maybe build what is called a POC, proof of concept, uh, yeah. before we sort of say, hey, uh, j let's jump right in, right? We, had a, we did have a client just recently, and this, this happens every once in a while, where we do the research. We spend maybe about a month, month and a half of doing the research, and we come back and we say, you know, this is not really doable within your uh, proposed budget and your proposed timeline. So we don't think that this is uh, appropriate for you to continue forward. Um, you know, you should really look at some of these other options uh, as opposed to building something custom. The, the advantage of the world that we're moving into in 2020 and beyond is that most enterprise software applications or off-the-shelf or SaaS solutions yeah. are extensible. I can go to those providers and I can say, do I have access to your API? Do I have access to the back end of your tool to push data from tool A to tool B? And if so, you know, is there a cost associated with that? And if not, how long would it take me to get access to that? And we find that for a lot of the solutions we're building for businesses, the problems they have are just that a couple of systems are not necessarily talking to each other. They don't necessarily need to build something custom. They just need the systems they have to, to talk to each other uh, in a much more seamless way. Sometimes it's building a dashboard. Sometimes it's just building API connections between existing systems um, and or building API connections to an external system that they're looking at using, like let's say Salesforce, or let's say they're gonna use something like, uh, so we have, we have OnCourse, which is a, a CRM that we often build connections to in-house. Right. Um, really and truly, most of the solutions are probably available, they're probably out there, but not in the cocktail that you need for your business. You, you probably do need somebody to be that integration partner, help you sort of tie those things together, and make, make uh, alphabet soup of the soup. Right. And some of the consulting work that I do in one of my businesses, 
It involves using simple technologies to automate processes and remove human beings from places where the human being can actually cause more problems than they solve. I'll use one of my own lines of business as an example, our podcast booking firm. So we had a few th different things going on. We were using a, a project management software, you know, off the shelf thing called Teamwork to track the clients, the bookings, the outreach, and what have you. And that involves setting up task lists and project lists and dependencies and all other kinds of things that are terms that are probably very familiar to you, especially when it comes to task, task flow building. And then separately, we have an email marketing slash CRM called Active Campaign, where we build the profiles of the shows where we want to have people booked. So this is the host, this is their booking agent, this is the types of guests they're looking for, this is who we've already pitched, this is who they interviewed, this is who they said they didn't want to interview. So we're building legacy in a couple different places. And it was getting pretty frustrating for our people to go back and forth. So we started to drift away from teamwork and track the progress of the client getting bookings using a Google Sheet, which is shareable within our small organization and allows us to build the columns we need. Well, Abracadabra, my friend, Active Campaign recently came out with an integration that allows its CRM function to populate to and from Google Sheets through an API. So. I think that there's also room for people to demand things and also a look, uh, a way to look at why are people resisting technologies and what are some of the shortcuts and, oh, this is easier that they end up doing and how can we integrate that into something that'll make more sense for the organization as a whole? Because if I trusted a booking agent with a, with a Google sheet, they may put all kinds of idiosyncrasies on that and then they leave or they need to share with a colleague and now what? But now if we have something where we have the spreadsheet set up just a certain way and it automatically plugs into the other place where we're building the legacy, now we have something that's shareable that doesn't depend on one human being. Correct, yeah, and I, and I think, going back to sort of my earlier discussion of like putting a system in place that allows your team to sort of be extensible and actually be more focused on solving harder problems is going to lead to better outcomes. One of the things that we find though, is that the problem of using one of those off the shelf, shelf tools, they've already sort of capitalized sort of to the maximum degree of what they can with some of those off the shelf tools. And really they're, they're going back to the, uh, round peg square hole, they do need a custom solution. They need something that is tailor-made to their business because yeah. there's, a, there's lots of unique business models out there that do not function in the fundamental way that some of these softwares are set up to do, right? I think yeah. when they, I'll, I'll kind of rag on Salesforce a little bit. Lots of folks like to go into Salesforce to do lots of things that Salesforce was never designed to do. And they're trying to solve problems in Salesforce that are actually costing them more than if they would have built a custom solution that just solved that problem from the get-go. Done properly, you can build something that's very lightweight that can be maintained internally eventually and can be extensible for you know, five, six years before it gets to the point where you start to sort of need to refresh the application. Um, we, we have a manufacturing and distribution client that is still on green screens. I mean, it is bizarre. Wow. That is going back. I, 
I remember this YouTube video I saw last year. I think it was some kind of shipping and distribution company in Poland that was still using a Commodore VIC-20 to manage the shipping. Yeah, that, that's, yeah that's pretty crazy, pretty wild. The Commodore VIC-20 is something I had when I was about six years old, not to date myself, but that's about when it came out, and that's about when I got a Commodore VIC-20. And even as a kid, I kind of viewed the thing as a toy. I thought it was fascinating how I was using a cassette player to record data and use it as the hard drive. I thought that was really cute. But overall, I'm thinking, oh, I can make colors and shapes and play little word games. And and if I follow this manual that comes with it, I can replicate these little scripts that perform basic functions. To me, it was a toy. I didn't really even think of the Commodore VIC-20 as anything I would ever use to for a business. And I wasn't even thinking about business at that point, but I already made that connection. And here we are, we have, uh, we have 40 years later, we have a company using the Commodore VIC-20 to manage its operations. Yeah, it, it, is, it is bizarre. I mean, just given the available options out there. But the other thing I would say is that technology, both sort of off the shelf stuff and then custom things, it's evolving at a pace that has never really occurred before in human history. Right. By the time you learn a new technology, a new available technology, there's someone out there who is probably building a newer or better version of that technology. And so we are, we're sort of in, a, in a, a time period where as soon as I start to build something, uh, it, it really kind of becomes obsolete. As soon as I start to purchase, as soon as I purchase that laptop, it is going to become materially obsolete. And so yep. the move to building your own custom software that integrates with, that's integrated with your business and really is part of your ecosystem and ties to your business model is the move we're seeing a lot of mid-sized businesses and enterprise businesses go to. And, and slowly, small businesses are moving this way as well because they recognize that for them to keep up with sort of the pace of change of the business world around them, they have to constantly innovate. And one of the ways they yeah. innovate on their business model is by building unique software that solves their particular need for, for themselves internally or for their clients. You raise an interesting point. This is, I think, one of the fears we have sometimes. Folks will build something custom and invest tens of thousands of dollars into it, or at least think that it'll cost them tens of thousands of dollars. And then as soon as they get it right to where they like it, something the market comes out with something that's, basically the same thing that they could have paid $300 for. And I think that the fear of that happening may inhibit people from developing systems when there is nothing they can just buy off the shelf right now, but they need the innovation now. I, th I think that's, that's a fair point. And one of the ways that we see businesses increasingly counteracting that is by intentionally spending some of their R&D budget, or if they don't already have an R&D budget, setting up an R&D budget around software to try to disrupt themselves by saying, here's a bunch of smart people, let's just go try to solve these problems. You're, these are the problems of the business, let me state them, let me put them on a board, just solve them and let the engineers sort of come back with solutions. Um, you know, Google famously does this, they have their sort of moonshots, but then structurally yep. they do allow uh, their, their team members to spend time to try to solve some of those internal problems at their, at their own will. We do that internally here at ZipTech. We, spend a percent of revenue for our, we call it ZipTech Labs, our labs team. And we just say, here's a bunch of problems in the business. Go solve this. If you can solve this, 
like we're going to give you a harder problem to solve and, and yeah the engineers love it and it, uh, it it has actually resulted in meaningful change in our business that's allowed us to really sort of better leverage our time to serve our clients and we expect that the market is going to sort of catch on to this this sort of continual process improvement through innovation within the business units um, within sort of larger corporations within mid-sized businesses and uh, to a lesser extent, small businesses, but within small businesses, by design, they're going to they're gonna start incorporating this process into their business model. And I think you're going to see a lot more, you're going to see that, that pace of innovation accelerate even beyond where it is today. Yeah. So with all that being said, what software program needs to be built that hasn't been built? I think that's a, that's a good question. I think the, the piece of software that needs to be built that hasn't been built is something that better allows businesses and individuals to you know, really kind of keep track. Let's, let's talk about small businesses, keep track of their time and their expenses in a, a seamless way that automatically sort of goes to their tax filings and, and all, uh, their QuickBooks and uh, Zeros and uh, Oracle cloud storage uh, that's out there. And, I, you know, we really see the tax base as being a place that uh, is continually uh, undergoing disruption. Um, and, then, and then ahead of the tax base, we see medical software as really being the next ground zero, if you will, of innovation. We, just like talking about people working on green screens, we have helped a number of medical clinics and, and small independent groups that have software that uh, uh, is effectively a green screen, uh, but is you know, 10, 15 years old. And they're using this to diagnose and they're using these tools to store sort of medical history, medical images, et cetera. With the tools that are available now, you can use AI, you can use business intelligence to put predictive analytics around the data that these machines are collecting. Let's just talk about an x-ray machine. Let's talk about an MRI machine and come up with a statistical model for what a given image should look like on average, right? And point out those flaws. And right now, let's just like within radi radiology, um, there's folks who are just kind of eyeballing it. That's, that's quite literally what the doctors are doing. They're looking at the picture and saying like, yeah, this looks like this. Whereas there are tools available that can identify the structures and say, hey, this is, there's a problem here, right? So we would say order of innovation that's needed first in the medical space, and that's going to be ground zero. Two, it's actually probably in the tax space for these small businesses. Um, and then three, probably finance is going to continue to get disrupted. Yeah, I think you're, I think you're on to something there. And for some of those same industries, there are things that are currently available that they can use. Uh, let me, here's something that came to mind as you were saying that. You mentioned tax base. So you're talking about like handling taxes and things like that. Is that what you're referring to? Yeah, I think, I think the, the tax structure. So like they did a, they did a study recently where they uh, took people's tax returns and they sent them to like 20, they took, they took like two or three couples tax returns. They sent it like 20,000 different firms just to kind of give an, uh, an opinion. And every single firm came back different, right? In terms of what yeah. the, 
the person's uh, tax should be, right? And I think that's, that's actually very disruptive for businesses to not really kind of know what their tax position is. They're not using capital efficiently. Yeah. Um, and and I, ultimately that's really problematic because they can't then plan for the future. Yeah, you know, we covered that on one of our recent episodes here at Business Creators Radio Show from a different perspective. It's the idea that let's say you're working with one accountant or one tax advisor or tax planner for 10 years. And you have a pretty good thing going. You've got a great set of deductions. You're effectively managing your cash flow to max your taxation strategy and everything seems to be going well. Then that accountant retires and you have to get another accountant and they come in and say, who was this bozo? And they suddenly come up with a whole bunch of stuff that you should have been doing and tell you about how you shouldn't have been doing some of this other stuff you should have been doing and you're lucky you're not in jail for it. Whereas I could then take that to a third account and they would say, yeah, both these guys are off their rocker. What the hell do they know? So when you look at that and you realize how thick and how many pages our tax code has and how many things are up for interpretation. That's why they call it a tax code because it does require encoding to figure it out. So what I'm hearing you say is there could be a way that we could, I'm not sure if you'd be talking about like an AI type engine or some sort of innovative software or something along those lines that takes all that stuff into consideration based on entering the United States tax code into some sort of database and interprets everybody's the same way. Is that what you're getting at? By and large. And, and to some degree, they were thinking about the U.S. government or, um, you know, was thinking about putting out a system like that, uh, but it was kiboshed. And so there's, in a lot of cases, there's not really historical precedent data that you can use to say, you know, on average, people reported their, you know, uh, tax items this way. You know, that doesn't really exist uh, in the same manner that, uh, you know, let's say you have legal legal precedent, right? Um, yeah. And, and I think, so you can draw actually an odd corollary between the, this kind of tax precedent piece and the medical, sp- medical space, right? There should be unified databases where you can see what treatments across uh, what health conditions have been effective. Yeah. Uh, I'll give you an example of where the, some of those databases do exist, but it's for private medical companies, private uh, hospital groups. I had a friend who had uh, a really terrible bone cancer. Um, he's fine. He's lived. He's done great. He's had a great recovery, full remission, everything. Thank but, God for that. Yeah. But the only way they found that there's a treatment that has a high statistical probability of working is because this one hospital group in Texas was sharing data with a French hospital in, in uh, France. And there's a certain type of uh, treatment that they could use that had a really high survival rate. And there's only been, in terms of recorded data that they have, three or four other cases of this exact type of cancer. I mean, something super obscure. And that type of medical data, that type of database where information is shared about treatments doesn't really exist. And, you know, there's there's a lot of groups working towards those types of innovations. Uh But in terms of your day-to-day interactions with your doctor, if you were to just break a leg or do some of these other things, it really is just still eyeballing it and experience of the physician in most cases. There is not data 
being applied to these cases uh, prospectively, like retrospectively, sometimes they go back and you have, uh, you know, MD, PhD statisticians who go look at this data, but prospectively, they're not saying, you know, here's what, here's what a, a bunch of data say about, you know, these types of breaks or this type of treatment vector that I should be using. Um, most groups and most individuals and most hospitals are not using anything close to that. And that right there, now we're getting into people's lives. Did you know that there are medical groups and hospitals in countries outside the United States that have developed cures for cancer? I don't mean treatments. I mean cures. It exists. No, I, it, it's, out, it's out there. Uh, but the thing is, is we don't know a lot about that here in, say, the United States, where, where I'm located. And because they're thinking, wait a minute, you can't really cure cancer. You might be able to put it into remission as long as it's not within a certain body part and it hasn't metastasized to a certain degree. But there are cures out there. And to me, I think a part of that, and they can say, well, yeah, they lobby to make sure that there's no cure because there's too much money to be made in cancer. Well, I can tell you, there's a mint to be made in the cure too. Uh, the, I mean, no matter what's out there, there's a way to make money with it. So uh, that whole lobbyist uh, thing only goes so far with me. I think that based on what you're saying is if we had better communication using software, the things that spring up in some hospital in Texas or some medical treatment center in Texas could find their way into the general lexicon and be discovered and shared so that more people can benefit from it. We just don't have that because we don't have the technology applications that facilitate that. I think that's, I think that's correct, right? We, we don't have, as a society, we don't have systems that are really truly integrated to and amongst each other. You think of, people think of the internet having all data for everything, but the reality is that um, you have a, a bunch of disparate systems that are not really talking to each other, not really sharing information, and their in, information is not really indexable. It's not really searchable. And until we start doing that sort of on a, on a macro scale, Right, we're not going to solve some of those problems, and yeah. so we take that. We take that. My company takes that same thinking of, well, look at the macro problem. How do we apply it to our particular client businesses and say, what systems within your business are not talking? What systems amongst your outside tools or uh, data sets are not talking? Where where do you not actually have visibility? Sometimes we we have companies that are let's say they're building risk databases they basically generate false positives for themselves and they're tracking yeah. metrics that don't, that, that, where there's lurking variables and they're missing key parts of their data because they're not taking a broad enough view of the data that they should be bringing into their organization. Um, that can apply for simple sales tools, sales and marketing tools, uh, as well as, um, you know, these sort of these on the extremes of sort of the medical statistical databases uh, side. And so one of the, one of the approaches that we encourage, you know, sort of our uh, client firms to take is kind of like do a scheduled repetitive SWOT analysis where you're looking constantly for those weaknesses, opportunities, and threats that are really a result of change, change in the marketplace, change of available technology, change of, uh, a lack of understanding, say, in, uh, within your business? Like, where do you not have competency? 
and hire against that. Hire against the competency that you don't have. If you're, if you're weak in marketing data, go get at that data scientist who really just understands marketing. Yeah. And I think, and I think you're right about that. Hire against the competency and really understand where those holes are. And sometimes we don't know what we don't know. And we don't know what questions to ask. If for people I know who have digital marketing firms, who have web design firms, a common question that they get from their clients is, uh, can I see the analytics from the website? You know, and you know, they may use some off-the-shelf tracking software, they may use Google Analytics, they may use Facebook Pixels or whatever it is, and they'll just want, well, well, give me a report on that. Well, what are you looking for in a report? Because I can take any of those tracking softwares and I can pull out whatever data you're looking for, but what are you looking for and how are you going to apply it to the business? And then here's one I've discovered from friends of mine, including a couple of people who've been guests on the Business Creators Radio Show like you, who specialize in managing online advertising campaigns, like buying ads on social networks and such. And their common practice when they're working with the clients is they will have the clients install anywhere from three to seven different tracking softwares on their web pages. When they analyze the data from those seven tracking softwares, they get seven different sets of results. I even exposed this once with one of my clients. They hired an, an advertising agency to help them manage their Facebook ads. And the advertising agency said, yeah, we're showing that you have added 150 people to your list as a result of our ads. And I said, okay, well, we have that opt-in form connected to uh, a specific list in our email marketing system that we created just for your campaign. It has... 48 names in it and our overall database has had a net growth of 72 since we hired you so that's counting all the additions and subtractions from everything we're doing both organic and paid so but they swore by their data said we had 131 or whatever it was new opt-ins and i have data that shows that there's 48 names there right what we get down to the reason I brought up all those examples and then, you know, the seven different tracking softwares that, uh, that analyze visitors and user behavior on the web page, and they all give seven, and they each one give their own answer, seven different tracking softwares, seven different sets of data, is that you have the softwares out there that may purport to all manage the same thing or analyze the same thing, but the way they do it is a lot different. I mean, when you have seven softwares, they can't even agree how many visitors you had to your web page that day. That tells you something. Very much so. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's problematic. And so, you know, I, th I think in other cases, uh, sort of to kind of echo your point, in some cases, you need to make use of multiple tools to evaluate if the tools that you're using are working, right? You yes. need to see if, if you are off base, um, if there is a better mousetrap out there that you should be using. Um, and, you know, if there isn't, build something that is going to solve that particular problem. Build something that is going to give you the answer that you need to have to run your business. Don't try to reinvent the wheel. I think a lot of folks are constantly running around, uh, you know, sort of reinventing the wheel or making things more complex than they need to be. Even our clients come to us and one of our, our mission statement is really kind of to solve our clients core business needs yes and 
that, that means a couple things. It means we're not focused on the periphery of, yeah, there's five other problems you need to solve, but what is the one that's causing the most pain, right? People often come in and say, I want to build this, 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 this. And we'll say, okay, well, what is the thing that's, that's causing the most pain? What is the core problem? And if we can solve that, then actually the problems on the periphery that were there initially are not as big as the person first thought. And oftentimes what they'll discover after turning over that big rock is that, oh, there's actually another problem out there. These other periphery items don't matter. There's another big, big, big rock that I need to turn over that would actually solve a lot of, a lot of pain in my business. And so constantly reevaluating, being, being, putting yourself uh, as a management team, as, as, a, as a you know, sort of business owner, putting yourself in a position to evaluate what has changed, what are those threats, opportunities, weaknesses, and do that like systematically is going to lead to better decision-making. It's going to be, lead to a recognition in most cases that in some, in some positions of your business, you could probably use a tool or a, um, a solution to solve a problem that is just, has just crept up over time or has been there but never been solved. Yeah, one of my favorite convers and one of my favorite conversation starters on that. When I hear a client or I hear anybody say, "Well, that's the way we've always done it," whatever it is, I'll say, "Yeah, and you know what? I'm pretty amazed that despite the fact you've done that, you're still in business." And I'll just and I'll just I'll just pause right there, right, and allow that to sink in. Where I said, "Oh yeah, yeah," despite the fact you've done that, I'm amazed you're still in business. Congratulations. Now and. The point, the reason I say that and then I pause is I create that moment of silence. It starts to get their wheels turning of, wow, have I actually dodged a bullet here? Have I missed a great opportunity? Have I thought this through that there may be something better that we could be doing here, something different than we can be doing here. One of the things I share through my consulting and also in my book, which is Groundhog Day is an event, not a business strategy. And I think this is so important that I actually repeated the same section of, of content twice in two separate chapters. It, that's not a misprint. I did that on purpose, is to have people ask the question when looking at any process, any regulation, any system, any software, any role, any flow chart is, what would happen if we didn't do this at all? So you just remove it and imagine the world without it. And then maybe you start testing it by skipping certain steps and seeing what really happens. Does the world fall down? Does the sky collapse in? Do you perhaps reveal something some groundhog that's been burrowed beneath the surface and is weakening your foundation. But now that you've removed this protective layer, you can see where the ground is starting to get weak because the burrow's digging under there. Or you may say, wow, that thing that we were spending so much time doing actually has absolutely no impact on anything at all. We've just plugged a revenue leak in our business. Right. The possibilities are endless when you just keep asking that question. And it's not a, and it's not a, a, a condemnatory question like, what would happen if we didn't do this at all because it's dumb? Or what would happen if we didn't do this at all because we'll destroy the business if we don't do it? It's just, what happens if we don't do it at all? Let's find out. Let's think it through. We use a lot of frameworks for our thinking. Like we use, there's something called Eisenhower Matrix. We use that. We use uh, really kind of like a set of uh, order of operations when we're making a decision. 
we apply that also for our clients when we're sort of making a decision or helping them make a decision. We say, well, let's step through these set of steps that we use when developing software to understand how important is the problem really, right? I mean, you can, you can get even, there's going back to, you know, Benjamin Franklin's autobiography, right? He comes out with a, here's a weighted system that I use when I'm trying to work on his, he's working on himself and also making decisions. Yeah. Having a structure in place that you can lean on is one of the most helpful mechanisms for decision making. The other thing is you should list out those 25 problems you identify in your business and really only focus on, let's say the top two or three, because if you try to do 25 things, you're going to do none of them well. It'd be Correct. better to just kind of solve those top two or three things and, you know, just kind of get that out of the way and then move to the next items in the list. The same is true when we're building software. Uh, the same is true when we're solving software problems for our clients. Identify what those top 25 things are and then solve the top three. Don't focus on everything else. It's noise. Focus on the top three things and then everything else will sort of fall into place in an appropriate order. I was just getting ready to say that because sometimes if you look at your top three problems, they could be causing some of those smaller problems. Take away the primary cause and the secondary can actually go away. Very much a Pareto problem. That's all 80, 20 uh -huh. sort of rule. Yeah. hundred yep. percent. We see that, we see that all the time. Yeah. I, I just want to highlight again, early in our conversation, you mentioned something called proof of concept. And I just want to say that again, a little bit later in our conversation, because I think that's such a valuable thing, not only for how we do innovation in software, but also how we do innovation in business that we're allowed to do something on a smaller scale. We're allowed to test something. We're allowed to actually move forward with something without committing to it that's gonna be our be all and end all. You mentioned Google and how they create all sorts of apps, all sorts of integrations. And we've seen so many things with Google come and go. They test things, they get beta testers. Sometimes they even just go ahead and launch it and see what happens. And think to yourself, and I ask our listeners while you're listening to this, think to yourselves as well. How many things, how many applications, how many different services has Google launched that have disappeared within your memory? Very much, yeah. A lot, a lot. And, that, and, and it's not for nothing that Google, and I, and I remember back before Google, you had AltaVista and Netscape and all other kinds of search engines. I mean, I remember uh, back in college, 25 years ago, that I would use five different search engines on a daily daily basis. I'd use five different so softwares. Now, uh, I use, well, I still use three. I use Google, I use Bing, and I use DuckDuckGo for various different reasons. Uh, that being said, that being said, uh, no matter how many software, you know, search engines you think are great, by the numbers, Google's number one with a bullet. And what to me sets Google apart from all the others is they do those innovative things that the other search engines just don't to that degree. Right. It's, it's structured time to try to innovate and disrupt their own business and huh. allow engineers to come in assess problems and say, if I was going to solve this from an engineering perspective, if I was going to autom automate this problem, how would I do it? Would I even try to solve this problem or should I move on to the next problem? Is this uh, something to put in the too hard category and move on to the next item? In some cases, that's, that's really what you should do. You should say too hard, not going to kill brain cells, yep. going to move on to the next thing. 
Yeah, they're, they're, yeah, for the small business owner, we're going to discuss them because I know we have about 12 minutes left here and I do want to spend a little bit of time on the small business. Duct tape is a big thing. I've seen so many marketing stacks, so many uh, customer service processes that on the back end, it really looks like a bunch of duct tape. To the end user, to the customer, it looks seamless. doesn't right. matter if the duct tape is there because the duct tape will hold it. But that's how a lot of things do, in fact, get patched together. And for all intents and purposes, it does its job for the time. Maybe there is room for uh, a custom software to be developed. Maybe something will eventually hit the marketplace that will simplify that whole thing and make it so that you don't have to use the duct tape. But in many cases, just slap some duct tape on it and it will, in fact, work. And I relate that to proof of concept in a way for myself. You may disagree, and I encourage you to do so if so. But I just see it from the perspective of, yeah, well, if we have the concept, I'm being quite literal here, Ian. If we, we're, if we have the concept, let's prove it and be okay if the proof is that the concept isn't there, the concept doesn't work. Right. Yeah, I think, I think that, that MVP, kind of get it out, test it, see if it works, that proof of concept, get it out there, see if it works. And then really to probably capture market share, the way, we, the way we've seen folks be super successful is develop with a sort of quality of an order of magnitude better than what is out there on the marketplace. So one of the things we do when we sort of position ourselves is we don't really focus on, we're, we're not really kind of going for the highest price in the marketplace. We're not going for the fastest development time we're going for the best quality. We're going for the best quality mm -hmm. engineering work that we can do within the budget and time frame, um, and and not trying to sort of like you know push the needle on uh, what we're what we're charging our clients or push the needle on push the envelope on um, how fast we're trying to deliver. We're trying to deliver something that is better than what is available in the marketplace, based on our broad experience serving lots and lots of clients and if our clients can solve their core problem and solve their core problem in a way that delivers for their clients in an order of magnitude better than what is available it's going to be sticky it's going to be a sticky solution uh, for their end consumer and it's a different approach it requires different thinking but when we're able to apply that we're able to deliver a much better solution and something ultimately that that makes our clients more money I agree with that. So in the few minutes we have left here, I, and I know that just visiting your website at ZibTech.com, we see all kinds of major name companies that you've worked with. Your portfolio is extremely impressive. You're working with some real champions here. I'm not going to say the names out loud, so this remains evergreen, but somebody goes to ZibTech.com, they'll see some of the companies and think, wow, these guys are major players, and that's great. Our listeners tend to be entrepreneurial companies in many cases that have recently or in the process of making the transition from being a solopreneurial gig to a leveraged organization. Uh, Revenue-wise, usually somewhere between $250,000 and $500,000 a year gross with one to five employees. Just to give you an idea of where we are in terms of what we like to call our sweet spot. Mm -hmm. I wanted to have you on this show because I like to expose our listeners to how the larger players do it and get some of those insights so that they can see themselves implementing things that will serve them 
our listeners implementing things that will serve them as they move towards being those larger players in their marketplaces. So we offer that level of support through the content of our episodes. But for somebody who's in the niche that I just described, and they're just getting to that point where they're ready to start looking at creating, as you said, an R&D budget around software. What are some of the more common things you see for those smaller type businesses or those smaller on their way to midsize type businesses that using innovation with custom software could really help propel them right now? Right. So we, you know, we do serve uh, folks in that sort of startup and smaller business solopreneur arena. And one of the things that we see folks do is they, they'll build that bucket list of things that they would love to build and solve for. And then what we do and what we ask them, what we ask our, our sort of partner clients to do is what is the one thing that you would solve? If you could, if you could only get one of these things, what is the thing that you would solve? Build that, solve that problem. Maybe you can build, maybe you can build a solution that's uh, 20, 30, uh, you know, a hundred thousand dollars, a little bit more and solve that problem. If you could, if we could do that for you, what would that problem be? Let's define it. Let's, let's wireframe it. Let's get it on paper. Let's get rid of all the superfluous stuff that you really don't need that wouldn't solve the problem. And if you could build that, would that help your business? Would that help you scale your business? In a lot of cases, the answer is yes. And custom software, the price of custom software, the price of building a unique solution that's oftentimes a little bit more narrowly focused than obviously any sort of enterprise software is coming down. And my firm and, and other firms like it are helping make those things much more accessible. The change in technology is making it so that rapid software development, the ability to build pretty complex things uh, relatively cheaply uh, is available. Actually uh, like 10 to 20%, again, it varies just depending on uh, the number of uh, projects we have and, and what we're doing at the time uh, tends to be startups, tends to be small businesses uh, is, is 10 to 20% of our, of our sort of total client base. Um, so it's, it's not a space where um, you have to have millions of dollars to solve really big problems. We've had, we've had folks come to us with ideas that, you know, we didn't necessarily think were super great, but they've turned into million dollar businesses in some cases, hundred million dollar businesses. In other cases, uh, we had one, we had uh, one business that sold for about a billion. And after they raised several rounds of capital, right, we helped them lay their first code and uh, get that on paper. So you never really know what's possible until you ask. And we're certainly willing to have those consultations with folks to say, Hey, you know, uh, maybe you couldn't, you can't build uh, this mega yacht, but uh, the skipper is going to solve your problem. It'll get you across the street. It'll get you across uh, where you're trying to go. I think that's fantastic. And I know that I've visited your website and I've seen the range of services. And I see some of these things that really could apply to what we call our business creators. You have a, like for example, website development solution. You have, I believe you work with mobile applications as well, mobile apps and you know, building your own app is kind of a big thing. And to me, that's one of those things that falls under the parameters you just described. The cost is coming down. It's becoming a lot easier to do. And you don't have to necessarily have a $10 million budget to have a really awesome app that you can get on the Apple Store and the Google Play Store and use as a portal for communication and also to render service to your customers. I mean, just a few days ago, I discovered the joys of telemedicine for the first time. 
I, <laughs> I had a very minor ailment and I really, I mean, I knew what it was. I mean, I, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm not taking the WebMD perspective. It's like, it was a very minor thing. I knew what it was and I knew that a script would take care of it. So I didn't need to go sit in some waiting room for 20 minutes to have my blood pressure taken three times and then wait and wait and wait and then fight with them to explain to them that no, I don't need an entire battery of blood tests taken because then I'm going to faint from my trypanophobia. I don't need all that. I just need a script. And, uh, Telemedicine has, is one of those things where I was able to take a photograph of the thing that was ailing me, upload it, and then wait on my phone, with my, on my smartphone while I was doing other things, for the smartphone to beep and say, your nurse practitioner is coming online. Have a five-minute chat with them where they ask the diagnostic questions to verify that it is what I say it is, and then tell me to go pick up my pills. Right. Uh, yeah. and, and to me, and to me, what's great about that is it removes a lot of the unnecessary medical costs. I mean, I've, I mean, for the same thing that I experienced last week, I knew for a fact that antibiotics takes care of it. It's one of those things that happens to me about once a year. And I know that the first time I went through it, I had an emergency room visit and everything else. And it cost almost $2,000 to, in the end, get an antibiotic that took care of it. Right, right. So I, so, I, so I saved myself $2,000. I saved the insurance agency untold thousands of dollars just in processing it. I solved uh, the bandwidth issue where I allowed advanced uh, laboratory techniques and diagnostic tools to be used for people who really needed them. What, I guess, one question I have is, you know, what, what solutions do you see that are... Uh, needing to be built in the marketplace? Right off the top of my head, I think there are a lot of media agencies such as PR agencies and podcast booking agencies that need effective softwares for tracking where they get placements for their clients, where they're working on getting placements for their clients, and the database of places that either have or have not accepted their pitches. So they can track all that efficiently. So a new client comes in and uh, they know they can place them here, 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 and here. Or they approach that one podcast host and that one podcast host was a complete asshole. So now you don't have like five new uh, booking agents you hire that then approach that same person and just inflame the situation. Right. Yeah. Right. So, in other, so in other words, building um, a history of, of uh, success, failure, and pitfalls to avoid for new media agencies and new media such as podcasting live stream is huge right now. I don't see anything off the shelf that tracks that. Makes sense. Yeah. I, I haven't seen anything in that arena as well. Yeah. I mean, I'm, a, yeah, I'm aware of one of my competitors that built something custom. Uh, who knows? Maybe they're one of your clients, but outside of that, I think they're mostly using Google sheets. Yeah, probably. Yeah. yeah. Well, you'd be surprised with the number of people we've, we've, Get out of spreadsheets. It's bizarre. Exactly, exactly. So yeah, that would be something you may want to consider. So we are at the top of the hour. Uh, first of all, Ian, I want to thank you so much for being with us. And just want to verify, uh, folks who want to take this a step further, because we may have some listeners who are sort of leaning in thinking what the next step is, should go to zibtech.com. I'll spell that. That's Z-I-B-T-E-K.com. And as I understand it, when they get there, bring their questions to you, and they have the opportunity to schedule an initial consultation to find out if this is something that makes sense for everybody to pursue. That's correct. Yeah, well, happy to, happy to chat with you guys and 
you know, one of our one of our solutions uh, team members will, you know, take you through our process. We also have our process outlined on the site uh, for any custom solution that we build, and we'll walk you through that, right, and see if you're a good fit and see if we can help you solve your problem. Outstanding. So Ian Reynolds of ZipTech.com, thank you so much for being with us today. It's been an honor and an education. You bet. Well, thank you for having me on. I really appreciate it. All right. And for everybody listening, I appreciate you joining us here today at the Business Creators Radio Show. Again, please be sure to visit our website at www.businesscreatorsradioshow.com and subscribe to your favorite network so you get fresh content delivered straight to you. Until next time, have a great day. Take care.